turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 2. We've been in a series that we've entitled Relentless Joy, and we're on a journey uh, to find the joy that we all are missing and that the world seemingly seeks to advertise but leaves us wanting more. And as Christ followers, we have come to realize that the more we know Jesus, the more we can know what joy-filled lives are all about. And this morning we come to what is one of the most well-known and most beloved passages in all of Scripture, let alone the book of, of Philippians, and it's one that is dedicated to Jesus Christ. In fact, this text was a song that the early church put to music very quickly, and they began to sing over and over again. And I'm so thankful for Josh and our worship team because they led us in songs that I don't know if you knew where we were going to be at in our text today, but I think every one of the songs alludes to or quotes the passage that we're working on this morning. There is something great about the church singing about Jesus. But sadly in our world today, in our churches today, church attendance and church worship is more about us than it is about Him. And so today we are reminded that the reason why we're here, the reason why we fellowship, the reason why we sing, the reason why we preach sermons, the reason why we do what we do as Christians has nothing to do with us, but has everything to do with Jesus. Now this morning, we're going to learn about what it means to imitate In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, we are going to see that uh, we have a job to do, and that is to follow in the footsteps of others. Later in the text, we're going to see that Paul says, follow in my footsteps. And then later he'll say, hey, I'm going to send you Timothy, my spiritual son, my disciple. I want you to follow him. And then he's going to say later in the text of chapter 2, one of your own, a man by the name of Epaphroditus, who came to visit me from you, I want you to follow his example. Well, it's great to follow people's examples, but let's be honest with ourselves that every time we seemingly get behind someone, whether it's a political candidate or a, a, a star from Hollywood or some athlete or some statesman, The closer we get, the more we find out they're not so much different than you and me. And that's why Paul starts out this chapter of examples, this chapter about imitating, not with himself or or some other man or woman of greatness within their midst. He starts in chapter 2, verse 5, with Jesus. Because Jesus is who we're called to emulate, who we're called to imitate. Now, growing up as a kid, you would have known who I wanted to be like. You would have gone into my room, and across my walls of my room were pictures and posters upon posters of one person. In all different settings, in all different places, I wanted to be him. I pretended at moments and at times to be in his shoes, doing what he did best. Like many of you, when I was growing up, I wanted to be like Michael Jordan. And my room spoke that. 
and the endeavors that I had, I, I tried to be that. And I wasn't the only one. In fact, Gatorade came up with a, a slogan, a song that spoke to an entire generation who all wanted to be like Mike. Turn your attention to the screen and maybe you'll remember this. Sometimes I dream that he is me. Got to see that's how I dream to be. Let me ask you a question this morning. Who do you want to be like? I can be, I'll be honest with you, at 43 years of age, as much as Michael Jordan is a wonderful basketball player and a, a wonderful statesman for the NBA, and of course he's got lots of money, my desire to be like him as I grew older got smaller and smaller. If I was really honest with you, growing up, uh, my prized possession was a McDonald's. You had to buy each of the McDonald's posters, and on the back of it, it created this massive six-foot-six picture of Michael Jordan with a ruler showing that you can uh, continue to grow. And I remember I would do everything in my power, get on my tippy toes, stretch, do whatever I could to try to be like him. What Paul is telling us today is that we're all going to emulate someone. We're all going to pursue wanting to be like somebody. But what Jesus, uh, sorry, what Paul wants us to be is like Jesus. Paul wants us to be like Jesus, to walk like him, and talk like him, and act like him, and love like him, and serve like him, and and, and be kind as he was kind, and be loving as he was loving, and, and do all the things that he was about. But let me ask you this morning, is that what you're seeking to be like? At the top of the list there on your sheet, it says, I want to be like I want you to be honest. Can you say today, I want to be like Jesus? Now, now, again, I was honest with you. I did very little to try to be like Michael Jordan. Oh, I shot some baskets, and I hung some posters, but when the rubber meant the road, when it really meant I needed to put those things into action, I failed to do so. And can that be said of some of us this morning when it comes to being like Jesus? We hang posters, I love Jesus. We put fish on the back of our car, I love Jesus. We listen to certain songs and say we love singing those. But when it really comes to who we are and what we do and how we order our life, can we say that we truly are doing all that we can to be like Jesus? Paul says, I want to be like Jesus. And Paul tells the people of Philippians, if you want joy in this world, then it is found in a life that emulates and imitates Jesus. And in verses 5 through 11, he breaks forth about talking about this Jesus. Notice what he says. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we want to be like this Jesus. But Paul shows us four ways that we can't be like him. And what happens is, is it should not reduce us to rubble, but it should, listen to me, it should raise us to rejoice. What we don't have, what we aren't when it comes to Jesus is what makes Jesus so immensely beautiful and praiseworthy, and it is why we give ourselves to Him. It isn't because He's like us. That's not why we worship Him, because He's like us. We worship Him because He's unlike us. And even though the Scriptures define much of what Jesus is, we know that the totality of Scripture only begins to seemingly scratch the surface to our omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent God. And so we get to scratch at the surface of what the Lord has revealed, and quite frankly, when we get to eternity, we will over and over again learn how different our God is, and yet that different God was willing to be humble enough to put on flesh and make His dwelling among us that He might reconcile us from our sins and back to the Father. So what makes Him different? First of all, we need to recognize we are dust and Jesus is divine. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us the following in verse 47. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, He came from heaven. And so what we learn right away in our text is that Jesus had no beginning. He came from heaven. We were created from the dust of the ground, but Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, has been and always will be God. Now, you would think that that would be a foregone conclusion, But in our world today, billions of people believe things that are totally contradictory to what we believe the Scriptures clearly articulate and what Paul is sharing with us today, that Jesus always has and always will be God. So what do people say about Jesus? In fact, that question, who is Jesus?, is the most important question that any human being will ever ask. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they came up with some different ideas of who they thought people might have thought he was. But then he gets to the question, who do you say that I am? And what Peter says, is one of the times that Peter gets it right, when Peter articulates, you are the Christ, that is the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God, I want you to recognize something. He damned himself as a heretic according to the Jewish faith. Because there's only one God. And he said that Jesus was God. And it is on that confession that the church and Christianity is built. Christianity is not built because Jesus was a great teacher, even though he was. Christianity isn't built on Jesus being a worker of signs and wonders, even though he was. That's not what it's built upon. Jesus, I'm sorry, the Christianity was not built on Jesus' ability to, uh, to seemingly create a groundswell, even though that's what the church did. 
But what Christianity does and rises and falls upon is the idea that Jesus is God. So what does the world say? Hindus say that Jesus is the reincarnated being of Lord Krishna. So they like Jesus. Jesus is important in the Hindu faith, but he is a reincarnation, and he is, like many of us, just a reincarnation. We have this circle of life that's continuing to go on. Muslims believe that Jesus Christ uh, was uh, a miracle baby born from the Virgin Mary, but was a man who served as the forerunner to the prophet Muhammad. So he was a prophet in the line of Moses... But he was not the last and great prophet, for that would be Muhammad 700 years after Christ. And so he was a man that God spoke through. And again, that's nice things to say about it. It wouldn't be a bad thing for someone to say that God speaks through you. But when it comes to Jesus, who is God, it is defamatory. Because Jesus is more than that. The Mormons believe that Jesus is uh, the byproduct of a relationship between the resurrected Adam and Mary. And that he became, through his holiness and righteousness, the good son of two sons, him and Lucifer. And so he had a family. His mom was Virgin Mary, so that's enough of the Scripture. In Mormon theology, dad is a resurrected Adam, That's the second Adam that we learn about. And the second Adam comes, they have this union, and they birth two children, Lucifer and Jesus. One goes bad and becomes a god, small g, of the underworld. One serves and does good, and he becomes a god, small g, to all those who will walk in righteousness. He's a model, and and he is a pursuit that any one of us as men could pursue after because we too, through good deeds and righteous acts, can become God. Then there's the Jehovah's Witness. Those that come and knock at the door, they say that Jesus is the first created being. He's the first thing off of God's creative assembly line. He goes by a different name. That's Michael the Archangel. And he is a created being less, less than God the Father Jehovah but greater than us because of his preeminence of being the first of created beings. So much so that the Jehovah's Witness translation, the New World translation, does terrible translating work when it says in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, small g. So we have all of these different people, even contemporary individuals. Dan Brown, the writer of uh, the book of the Da Vinci Code, said that Jesus was a great teacher and a great leader who started not only a movement, but a royal line of lineage because of his sexual union with Mary Magdalene. They created what is the aristocracy now of France. And the church's job is to protect that aristocracy at all cost and expense. You see, there's a lot of opinions about Jesus. 
But as followers of Jesus Christ, we must always get back to this simple phrase, Jesus was and always has been and always will be God. And when you hold on to that pillar, you hold on to the same pillar that was articulated by Jesus himself, was fought against by the scribes and Pharisees and chief priests of Jesus' day, was celebrated by his disciples, and was codified by the early church through its creeds and beliefs. So let's talk about that. So the next time someone comes and says, uh, hey, I'd like to talk to you, your view of Jesus is wrong, write these things down somewhere. I don't have them in the outline. But why do we believe Jesus to be divine? Number one, because Jesus said he was divine. Jesus articulated to us that he was, in fact, divine. It was confessed by him. Notice, Jesus tells people, if you've seen me, Jesus says, you have seen the Father who is in heaven. So Jesus believed he was God. He was equal to the Father in heaven. Notice second, it was condemned by his enemies. In Luke 15, 21, we are told that Jesus is serving in a home And uh, there's some ruckus going on in the roof. And little by little, the the plaster, the drywall, whatever they had in those days, began to come down and a hole opened up and men began to drop their paralyzed friend down to the ground to get them to Jesus. And Jesus, being amazed by the faith of the man's friends, goes to the man and he says, your sins are forgiven. And with that, the man gets up and he's healed. Now, you would have thought in the room, you see a healing like that, everybody would be excited, but the scribes and the Pharisees in the room began to snicker and jeer and said, this man is speaking blasphemies, for only God can forgive sins. So Jesus' enemies knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They put him on the cross because he was a blasphemer. They did not believe that Jesus was who he says he was that he was God. Notice it was celebrated by the disciples. John 20, 28, Jesus after his death, burial, and resurrection, we've got the uh, disciples in the upper room, and they're fearful, and they're concerned about what's going on. And Jesus appears to them in the body, but somehow in his resurrected body, he's able to go through walls and doors, and he meets them in the middle. And Thomas, who has said, I'm not going to believe the stories of his resurrection unless I see him, unless I can touch him. Jesus says, Thomas, I want you to come. And he puts out his hands and he sees the nails, uh, the nail prints of where the nails went. And then he says, here, touch me in my side. And as Thomas does, as he begins to recoil from touching flesh and blood of a real man, who had been resurrected from the dead, he announces again a damnable heresy for a Jewish man, my Lord and my God. He knew who Jesus was. And then the church would come, and it would not come up with a new, as Dan Brown says, some new idea, but it would take what is true, and it would agree in one accord in the Nicene Creed where it says the teaching of G- about Jesus that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ 
the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. And so we start here because we want to recognize that what the Bible says over and over again is exactly what Paul is going to say in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus has always been and always will be God. And the moment you begin to even take him off of that pedestal, you reduce him to something less than the omnipotent and most holy God that he is. That's why Paul says in Colossians 1.19 that Jesus was the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. All that made God God was in Jesus Christ. Now, notice what the text says. The text tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that though he was in the form of God, that word form there is the Greek word morphe, and it speaks to the idea Not of appearance. There's a different Greek word. Schema is the Greek word for that. This isn't a change in appearance. Or the change of maturity. Or the change of of, of anything like that. This has to do with the essence of. The substance of. uh, The very real person. All that God is. What it's saying here in the text. Jesus was it as well. He was the same form, essence, and being as God was. And so we need to recognize that when we do see Jesus, we can, as Jesus said, see the Father. Because He is all that God the Father is, except in the fact that they are two persons within one Godhead. And I know right away your head starts to spin, and that's where God is going to spend the rest of eternity teaching us all that takes place. But this is how the Bible describes our God. And so we have before us Jesus, who is God. Now Jesus could have stayed in his position as God. Jesus was in heaven. Jesus had everything that heaven afforded him. Total worship and adulation and praise. and He got to do what he wanted, when he wanted, how he wanted. He was God. But Jesus does something that is so very important. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You see, that's the second thing that makes Jesus different than us. We live for ourselves. Jesus left heaven for others. And so Jesus makes a decision. And it seemingly is a decision that happens before the foundations of the world, before he created the world. The Trinity is having communication with one another. And at some point in eternity past, God the Son says, The creatures we are going to create will rebel against us, and what I will do is I will go, Father and Spirit, and I will go, I will become one of them, and I will redeem them back to us. And so he leaves heaven for you and for me. He didn't leave heaven because he needed us. 
He didn't leave heaven because something was lacking in his life. And he's like, you know what? I need a pet and these humans are going to be my pet. He didn't need any of us. God had the fullness of fellowship within the community of the Trinity. But he wanted to show mercy and grace and love unto a people far less than him. And so he leaves heaven. Jesus does, listen to me, the very opposite of what the devil taught us to do. In Isaiah chapter 14, we get a glimpse into life before the creation of the world and human beings. Just God in heaven with the angels. Lucifer is the chief cherub of the angels. And the Bible says at some point in eternity past, pride enters into Lucifer's heart And Isaiah 14 walks through five I will statements that say, I'm going to ascend to God's throne. I will be like the Most High. I will uh, ascend to the holy mountain. What What he's saying in these five I will statements is I will be God. Now Lucifer is so brilliant and so great that a third of the angels buy into his scheme that he can take God. And God, not wanting to deal with it, not wanting to uh, have sin enter into uh, a place of eternal perfection, he thrusts the devil and what would become demons from heaven. And we, tell, we are told that he is found in Eden. And it is there that that devil tempts Adam and Eve that they too can be like God. And that they can ascend and they can know the knowledge of good and evil. And man falls because man and women, we perpetually live for ourselves. We are low and sinful man and even sinful demons long to get high. And so we will, we will climb, we will steal, we will hurt, we will cut down, we will do whatever we have to to work ourselves up the ladder because we live for ourselves. It is dog eat dog and it's survival of the fittest and I want to be there. And what does Jesus do? Jesus, though he is great, became small. And so when we're living for ourselves, we are living a life antithetical to the life that Jesus did. He was great, he was rich, but became poor and weak on our behalf that we might be reconciled. We live for ourselves. He left heaven for others. Number two, we see, or number three, we see, we sin, but Jesus saves. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God, a thing to be grasped, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, and then he goes even deeper, even death on a cross. So Jesus leaves heaven, and some versions say he emptied himself. This is the doctrine that comes from the Greek word of emptying, kenosis. And, and this is a word that is argued in seminaries. And what does it mean, you know, did Jesus, when he became a man uh, and, became, and went to the cross, was he something less than a man? There was a first century um, heresy that, that went like this, that Jesus was a man who lived a good life and God made a decision 
that he was going to indwell him. And so when did the Spirit of Almighty God indwell Jesus at his baptism. This is my son of whom I'm well pleased. So he's this man who then God puts his seal of approval on. And then for three years he lives this life of being God's chosen instrument. But as he goes to the cross, because God can't die, we can't go there. God can't die a death. And so what happened is, is as he's hanging on the cross... When Jesus says, into your hands I commit thy spirit, this first century heresy said that the God part of Jesus left him and Jesus died as a man. That's not the emptying that we're talking about. So what got emptied? Listen to me. Never allow anybody to say that Jesus in human flesh was anything less than God. So what was it? The idea that he made himself nothing or emptied himself, is that what transpired is he set aside some things that he could have had, prerogatives, privileges that he could have had in his place in heaven as the second person of the Trinity, but by putting on flesh and making his dwelling among us, he decided not to use those things to set them aside for our good. So that we would have a high priest of to, uh, to whom would be able to sympathize with us because he's gone through all temptations and all things. So what did he set aside? Write these things down. These are very important. Number one, he set aside heavenly glory. Instead of worship, he traded in worship for mocking. Instead of adulation, he turned it in for scorn. Instead of praise, he traded it in for mockery. Jesus set aside his heavenly glory so that we could spit on him and beat him. Number two, his independent authority. As the second person of the Trinity, he didn't have to ask anybody's permission. He didn't have to uh, go by the beat of someone else's drum. He's God. But when we see Jesus on earth over and over again, he says, it is my place to do the will of my Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, not my will, Father, but your will be done. God doesn't say those things. God doesn't have to say someone else's will be done. But Jesus says, I'm willing to set that aside, that authority, so that I may bring honor and glory to my heavenly Father. Number three, he traded in earthly riches for poverty. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, sorry, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 says, though Jesus was rich, he became, help me out, poor on our behalf. So he traded the God life to be a pauper. Finally, and most importantly, He traded a favorable relationship with the Father so that God could make Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. This Jesus, who had been in perfect fellowship with the two other persons of the Holy Spirit, would announce the unthinkable when on the cross he says, my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? Jesus gave up favor with the Father for alienation because of us. Why did He do all of that? Because of His rich grace and mercy. He longed to reconcile people back to Himself. But God demonstrates His love for us in this. While you and I were sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't have to. He wasn't bound to it. But out of His immense love for us, listen to me and make it very personal, out of God's immense love for you, Jesus traded heaven to be a human. And He did it so that you and I might be reconciled. This, this idea of setting aside, to, to put it in perspective, because I don't want you to think, again, that Jesus becomes anything less. You're going to get in your cars here in a moment, or a couple moments maybe, and you're going to look down at the speedometer, and your speedometer is going to say that the car you're in has the ability to drive probably at least 120 miles per hour, right? It says it can go that fast. Now, you're in church, so let's confess our sins. How far have you pushed that, right? Probably most of us have never taken our car to the maximum ability that our car has. What we've done, whether because of the law or because of personal safety, we've made the decision that we are going to limit or set aside that fifth gear that we never use, even though it is there. That's what Jesus did. Jesus never lost the ability to do 120 million light years of speed, right? But what he said was, is, I'm not going to go there. And I'm not going to go there so that people will be able to see that being made right before God can happen. And so he goes and he's one of us. We sin. Jesus saves. Finally, we are fame seekers, but the name of Jesus reigns supreme. Sadly, all of us since the beginning are bent on seeking glory for ourselves, for our name to be in the lights. But Jesus' name is the only name that at its mention that every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and by, by the way, that isn't just poetic justice that he's giving. He's trying to tell you all of creation, all of creation. You can't get more of creation than in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. That's all of it. That's the totality of it. That on a day of God's choosing, everyone is going to confess and acknowledge the name that is above all names. Now, right away, Paul says the name Jesus. But is that the name? Because when Paul reads this or writes this to the Philippians, there probably were a lot of Jesuses in the world. Jesus was a very common name. Jehovah saves. God saves is where we get the name Jesus from. And there were no doubt many different Jesuses. That's why they called him Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Jesus of that town. So what's the name that is above 
every name. Notice the text. Paul goes on and he says there's a day coming because Jesus has lowered himself for the sake of others that God is going to lift him up in due time and that the name that he carries is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is, underline the next word, Lord. He's Lord. There are no other lords. There's lots of people, but there's only one Lord. And on that day, once and for all, Jesus will be forever vindicated and forever valued by all of creation when God says it is this Jesus who sits at my right hand who was there in the beginning, was there throughout it all and will be there in the end, this Jesus who was and has always been and always will be God, He is Lord. Have you ever noticed that people don't have a problem with good teacher Jesus or leader Jesus or healer Jesus. The problem they have is Jesus is Lord, but not on that day. Everyone will bow the knee. We'll get back to that in a moment, but let's stop here. I could spend a lot more time, and I've done probably somewhat of a disservice because this passage, we could, we could look at every single word in it. But now we know who Jesus is doctrinally and how he's different than us. Let's look practically very quickly, and we're going to go fast through these. There are four things that Jesus says that we can be like him. And, and at the heart of the text... This is what Philippians 2 is all about. Notice he says in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How do you do that, Paul? You have this mind among you, which was in Christ Jesus. So he shares doctrine, not to make our heads bigger, but to make our hearts of love bigger. He wants us to act practically based on what we've heard. And so here are four things that I want you to think through because there's no way to be able to share it with you to, to pinpoint exactly how you will apply this to your life. So number one, if you want to be like Jesus, be a giver, not a grabber. What I mean by that is Jesus was willing to give so that others may have opportunity, so others may have a new birth, so others may have peace and joy and experience love. Jesus gave and gave and gave. He gave when it hurts even dying on a cross. And so if we want to imitate Jesus, then we cannot be sitting there trying to grab everything for ourselves, but instead we give. And so we give of our time. We give of the talents God has given us. We give of the treasure God has given. Why? Because God was not a grabber. He did not consider equality with God something to be grabbed or grasped. But he made himself nothing. He gave. And so if you want to be an imitator of Jesus, then the first thing you and I must do is we must be generous with our lives. Number two, we need to be individuals who not only give, but we are those who are humble, not haughty. 
it is quite hilarious that we are the slugs of the world. We're little things. We're puny things. Compared to God, we're earthworms. (laughs) And we say with our created voices, look at me. Go outside sometime as the weather gets warmer and dig up some earthworms. And, and grab two or three of them and put one on a pulpit, okay? And, and start saying, look at how great this earthworm is compared to you other earthworms, you slugs. And you will see the hilarity that comes when human beings say, look at me. Oh man, who are you that God would be mindful of you? You're puny, you're small, created below the angels in many ways. We're nothing. So what makes us think that we can pontificate and we can uh, share of the greatness of who we are when apart from Jesus we can do nothing? So how haughty are you? Maybe not in word. Maybe you're smart enough not to share it, but it comes out like that. Boy, I'm glad I'm not like him. Boy, look at her. She's a mess. Boy, I'm glad I've got things put together. Remember when those moments come? Look in the mirror and you'll see you're one of the most beautiful earthworms or slugs you've ever seen in the world. We're nothing. So why in the world would we be haughty? Paul says that our focus should be not to look to our own interests, but to the interests of others. How do we do that? In humility, verse 3, counting others more significant than ourselves. And so we need to humble ourselves and put others in front so that they may be seen for who they are. Not so much about us. Third, be obedient, not obstinate. Jesus became obedient to death. And then it goes down to the cellar, death on a cross. He humbled himself so much that he was willing to die, and then he was willing to die a humiliating and excruciatingly painful death. Can I tell you, obedience is always going to cost you. It cost Jesus greatly. But he did it. Obedience in our day will cost us something. It will cost us friends. It may cost us promotions. It may cost us status in our community. It may cost us a relationship. Whatever it is, it will cost us. And the question is, will we be obstinate and say, no, the cost is too high? Or will we be like Jesus who says, I will take a towel and a basin and I'll wash people's feet? Are we going to obey? Will we say, God... Not my will, but your will be done. Fourth, will we be zealous for God's affirmation, not man's applause? You see, we're vying, we're fighting for, for a claim. We're, we're looking for our name in the lights, and we're looking for men to applause. And, and that will be great, because one day, when you get to heaven, you're going to either say, God, you've affirmed what I've done, or man has applauded what I've done. And I can assure you, when you get to heaven and you talk about all the things men and or women applauded you for, God says, that's not good enough. That our righteous deeds are but filthy rags before a holy God. And that in that moment, 
We will be ushered from the presence of God forever to a place called hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so in the here and now, instead of fighting and and pursuing the, the applause of men, let's do what Jesus did and humble ourselves so that one day we may hear as Jesus did, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's lower ourselves so in God's due time, he might lift us up. These are four ways that we can be like Jesus. So let's close this as we're going to get to communion here. What two truths is this for? Number one, it's for those who are lost. They've never trusted Jesus as their Savior. This passage screams to you, turn to Jesus before it's too late. There's a day coming where you who have rejected Jesus every day of your life will stand before Jesus and you will fall to your knees and you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Here's the thing. You're going to worship Him. But then it will be too late. Then only God's wrath will endure. So turn to Jesus. Confess Jesus while God's mercy is still upon us. Turn to Him now so that you might receive from God Himself reconciliation and redemption of your sins. Number two, for those who have trusted Christ and are saved, it is time for us to start spending time praising and thanking God. We've heard just a fraction of what God has done for us. Surely that should lead us to leave our worldly lusts and our worldly passions and fall all the more in love with Jesus. What is that lust? What is that desire? What is that sin that you so hold so tightly to that is of greater importance or greater value than the God of the universe who put on flesh so that he might save you and me from your sins? From our sins.